Welcome to Outdoor by 4 magazine's audio edition of issue 49. For those unfamiliar with Outdoor by 4, the magazine began its journey as a fully independent, vehicle-based adventure and outdoors lifestyle publication in 2013. Since that time, Outdoor by 4 has been the catalyst for expanding the reach of overland and vehicle-based adventure travel into the outdoors market, with a focus not only in the mode of travel, whether a 4x4, motorcycle, bicycle, or by foot, but also in the adventures themselves and the people who live them. In this issue, you'll hear a sampling of stories from Outdoor by 4's print edition, with this issue focusing on international destinations and adventure. There are also a variety of additional stories in this issue you can read by picking up a copy anywhere books are sold, or by subscribing or receiving a copy as part of your subscription order by visiting www.outdoorx4.com. We hope you enjoy this issue of Outdoor by 4 magazine. The Dispatch by Frank Ludwell, Editor-in-Chief. Going back to our first issue, international travel has been a subject we've highlighted on multiple occasions. While travel outside the U.S. has never been our primary area of focus, I've always looked at the international stories we share as an aspirational and important component to our storytelling to engage young and old to explore the world outside your doorstep. Throughout my lifetime, international travel has afforded me the opportunity to truly expand my worldview. As a child, my family traveled regularly to Mexico City to visit friends and family. In my college years, I spent a semester studying in the Czech Republic, spending most weekends traveling with friends into the unknown. These experiences were foundational along my path and has led to where I am now, writing an editorial about exploring the world. A few months back, I started to think about international exploration and our storyboard plans for the year. It occurred to me that in all our years, we featured special editions including our annual gear issue, but I've never done an issue where the editorial is focused exclusively on a specific subject. That's when I thought it might be fun to do an international issue, highlighting aspirational stories from around the globe. My only concern has been that Outdoor by Four's mission has always been to deliver storytelling that anyone can relate to and enjoy, and I was worried an international issue might suggest we're going a direction that would make the magazine less appealing. So, to mitigate any concern, Outdoor by Four will always be focused on stories anyone can relate to with the bulk of our storytelling focused on travel stateside, particularly given most of you, our readers, are here. Sure, we'll still sprinkle a few international stories every now and then, and depending on your response to this issue, we may look at producing a once annual international issue going forward. Regardless, my hope is you'll pick up this copy of Outdoor by Four, or read, listen to it on your mobile device or desktop, and be inspired either to visit a new place or live vicariously through the words of this issue's contributing authors. I think you'll find that if you do, the foundational experiences I've had along my path might play a role in your life's path, inspiring you to seek and find adventure outside your doorstep. Looking for the perfect fitting, fully customizable pop-up truck camper for your next adventure? Then look no further than the selection from four-wheel campers. From classic slide-in, bed top, and flatbed configuration designs, four-wheel campers has the setup you need. 
With extensive available custom options and precision built in Woodland, California, Four-Wheel Campers has been providing quality equipment for the outdoor community since 1972. For more information on the pop-up camper you've been looking for, then pop on over to fourwheelcampers.com. That's F-O-U-R, wheelcampers.com. To the bottom of the top of the world, a journey to Everest Space Camp by Craig Becker. While climbing the last few steps into Everest Space Camp, it can be difficult to catch your breath, and not just because you are approaching 17,600 feet in altitude. Towering high overhead are some of the most iconic peaks on the planet, and the sense of scale is both awe-inspiring and humbling at the same time. Seventy years ago, the famed British exploration team led by Sir Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay Sherpa made history when they successfully summited the top of the world. Their feat brought about instant fame and became legend within the mountaineering community, and would lead to opening up the Everest region for expanded exploration and eventual commercialization of the world's highest peak. Making the trek to base camp on Nepal's south side of the mountain, there are two base camps, one in Nepal and one on the north side of Everest in China, has been a staple in the wish list of adventure travelers, backpackers, and Everest junkies for years. For most, it is as close as they'll ever come to standing on the summit, and yet they feel compelled to go there and gaze upon the mountain, a sight that certainly does not disappoint. Nothing about the base camp trek is easy, including just getting to Nepal. My journey required more than 30 hours of travel just to reach Kathmandu, the capital of the country and gateway to the Himalaya. When you do arrive, you're greeted with a hot, dusty, chaotic, and noisy city that will have you bordering on the edge of sensory overload. Fortunately, my stay in Kathmandu was brief as the next morning I was on a flight to Lukla, the starting point for all treks in the Khumbu Valley. Access to Lukla is gained via the Tensing Hillary Airport, named after the first two men to summit Everest. The airport is infamous, as its only runway actually runs up the side of a mountain. This helps incoming planes to stop in a much shorter distance, though the approach can be a bit unnerving to watch, especially if you happen to be on one of those incoming planes. Once you're on the ground in Lukla, the journey to Everest Base Camp officially begins. Your first day on the trail is a rather short one and gives little indication of the challenges that await you down the road. However, the second day delivers a healthy dose of reality as it is one of the longest and most physically challenging days of the entire trek. You'll gain nearly a half mile in vertical elevation which culminates with your arrival in Namche Bazaar, the main trading center in the Kumbu. Built on the side of a mountain, Namche Bazaar is one of the more popular and well-known stops along the trek. The narrow cobblestone streets are lined with tea houses and gear shops that sell all manner of equipment. If you've forgotten something important for your journey, Namche is likely to be your last chance to add it to your pack. Once you're finished shopping, you'll find a number of bake shops, internet cafes, and pubs to help you relax and pass the time. The village is generally used as an acclimatization point as well, with most groups taking a rest day to get used to the altitude. After departing Namche, you'll get your first real glimpse of Everest and her sister, Lotse, peeking out from behind distant clouds. The sight of both mountains is awe-inspiring, even from a distance, and the view serves a great reminder of why you've come to Nepal. But it is the 22,349-foot Amadablam that commands center stage for much of the trek, and with its unique, highly distinctive profile, it is easy to see why it is considered one of the most beautiful mountains in the world. Over the course of the next few days, the trail winds its way through a number of villages, 
which continue to diminish in size as the trek goes higher. These villages have names like Tengboshe, Dingboshe, and Lobushe, and they are home to friendly and hardy mountain people of Nepal. You'll pass by Buddhist temples, through Rodondaran forests, and around monuments to fallen climbers, while those omnipresent snow-capped peaks continually provide the most stunning views found anywhere on the planet. The path gets increasingly dustier as you move to higher altitudes, and when combined with the dry, thin air, the dust tends to bring on a nasty ailment that is commonly known as the Kumbu cough. Few who visit the region seem to be able to escape this hacking cough, which manifests itself deep in your chest and seems to come on at the worst times. For many travelers, it is the longest lasting souvenir from Nepal, staying with them long after they've returned home. The last stop before base camp is a ramshackle collection of buildings known as Gorak Shep. From here, you would think it would be an easy stroll up to BC. However, it is still a few hours and 600 vertical feet further up the valley. Adding to the challenge is the trail itself, which becomes quite rocky, making the final push to your final destination a gut-wrenching and exhausting one. Once the end of the trek is in sight and you can see the tent city that is base camp from a long way down the trail, you'll be pushed by a renewed inspiration to finish the trek and reach the foot of the mountain you came so far to see. The official altitude of Everest Base Camp is 17,590 feet. It's marked by a large sign, fastened to a boulder and surrounded by multicolored prayer flags which flap wildly in the wind. I arrive with both a sense of exhilaration and relief as the trek had been a challenging one, though the rewards more than made up for it. Once I arrived, I sat on a large boulder, sipping from my water bottle while eating an energy bar, and I couldn't help but feel a wave of satisfaction. The scenery was spectacular and I had made it to one of the true classic adventure destinations. A smile spread across my face thinking of the wonder of it all. And that's when it hits you. The scale of the place is simply enormous. You're at 17,000 feet, well above any point in the continental United States, and yet the surrounding peaks still loom another 10,000 plus feet over your head. It has a way of making you feel very, very small. Shortly after that realization, another one sets in. For the trekkers, base camp is our destination. From there, we'll go back down to thicker air, comfortable beds, and good meals. But for the climbers who have come to Everest to stand on the top of the world, this is just the beginning. They'll spend weeks acclimatizing and preparing to go up the mountain. It is a subtle reminder of just what it takes to scale the tallest mountain on the planet. That realization makes you respect the climbers and the accomplishments of their predecessors, most notably Sir Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay Sherpa, whose will to succeed at the impossible has driven the hopes and dreams for all. And with that, I turned back down the Kumbu, humbled yet happy that I had come to that place which rests at the bottom of the top of the world. Behind the Wheel, the world's top overland routes, words and photos, Patrick Koryvagen. You know the feeling, you spent a few days away exploring the wilderness and now wanderlust has set in. Perhaps it's time for a sabbatical or a long leave, or if you are feeling really brave, then why not pack in the job, sell the house, take the kids out of school and hit the world's overland trails for several months or even years. But where to go? When you speak to people who overland for a living, people such as Kingsley Holgate, Ron Moon, 
Graham Bell, or Andrew St. Pierre White, their faces light up when their talk turns to their personal bucket list of overland trails or routes. We're not sure what those guys would suggest, but here's our list of epic overland trails. Cape Town to Cairo. No other continent possesses the allure of Africa. The people, wildlife, suspension-challenging tracks, and wide-open spaces make it an overlander's paradise. And African adventures don't come bigger than the drive from Cape Town in the south to Cairo, Egypt at the top of the continent. The easiest route takes you through Tanzania, Kenya, Ethiopia, and Sudan, while more adventurous souls prefer the route along the west coast of Africa. Before undertaking an epic journey like this, here are a few important things to consider. Simpson Desert, Australia. The Simpson Desert is big, 55,000 square miles big. It's also the largest parallel dune desert in the world. To cross its 1,136 dunes takes a minimum of four days, so a well-prepared 4x4 is essential, and take ample water supplies, because help can take days to reach you, should you have a problem. Spend a night or two at the Dalhousie Hot Springs before starting the crossing, and try the tasty camel pies at the Burrsville Bakery. A highlight of your Simpson journey is reaching the summit of the Big Red Dune at the end of the trail. Don't get caught without water in the desert. Frontrunner's 20 or 42 liter pro water tank will help you do just that. Pan American Highway. The Pan American Highway is considered by many to be the ultimate road trip. Stretching 17,000 miles, this makes it the world's longest motorable road, according to the Guinness Book of World Records. If you drive 350 miles a day, it will take you 50 days to complete. We recommend taking a minimum of six months to do it. The official route includes Mexico, Guatemala, Honduras, Nicaragua, Costa Rica, Panama, Colombia, Ecuador, Peru, and Chile. Lots of folks start their trips in Alaska, thereby adding the United States and Canada to that official list. Some people also like to include Argentina at the end. There is a short, infamous section between Colombia and Panama known as the Darien Gap. You'll need to ship your vehicle across unless you have a large, highly skilled support team and heaps of spare parts. London to Singapore. In 1955, several Oxford and Cambridge University students set off from London in two Land Rovers. Seven months, 12,000 miles, and many adventures later, they arrived in Singapore. Expedition member Tim Slessor wrote a book about it called The First Overland, which has since become the inspiration for many an overlanding adventure. In 2019, one of the original Land Rovers from that trek left Singapore to drive back to London. Fittingly, this expedition was called The Last Overland, and Alex Bescovy's book of the same name is worth a read. As you can imagine, the expeditions used different routes due to the ever-changing political landscapes. Both were able to visit Singapore, Malaysia, Thailand, and Myanmar, but the rest took different routes. The first overland used a more southern route, taking in places like India, Pakistan, Iran, Iraq, and Syria, while the last overland used a more northerly route and instead went through Nepal, China, and some of the stands. Nordka People love using geographical points as an excuse for an overland adventure, and Nordkap, the most northern point in mainland Europe, is one such place. It lies at the northernmost tip of mainland Norway, and to reach it you will enter the Arctic Circle, another geographical notch on your travel post. How do you get there? Simple. Head for Norway, and then for the most northern point on a map. Brace yourself for spectacular scenery before the finish at the Nordkap's iconic steel globe sculpture, which overlooks the Barents Sea. Depending on the time of year you're there, you may even be dazzled by the northern lights. 
wildebeest migration in Kenya or Tanzania. If you're looking for one reason to do an overland trip in Africa, then this should be it. Imagine witnessing 1.5 million wildebeest migrating over the East African savanna. The best thing about this is that they don't travel alone. They bring lions, cheetahs, and hyenas along with them. Make sure you go to the right place at the right time as these animals move between the Serengeti in Tanzania and the Maasai Mara in Kenya. North Coast 500, Scotland. Is this the most beautiful 500 mile stretch of road in the world? We certainly think so. Kick off the route in Inverness and head west to the coast. But first you'll have to make your way up the steep and winding single track pass of the cattle, the steepest in all of Scotland. Stop at the Apple Cross Inn for some fresh seafood before taking in the west coast where you'll discover a postcard worthy view around every corner. White beaches, salmon smokehouses, single malt distilleries and rugged mountains. This route has it all. Iceland and the Northern Lights Every year the number of tourists who visit this incredible country increases dramatically. Most of them do the 130 mile golden circle, taking in incredible attractions such as the Great Geyser and the Gullfoss waterfall. Research how best to kit out your 4x4 for Iceland's unique environment and go where mainstream tourists can't. The uninhabited Icelandic highlands are a good starting point. The volcanic deserts you'll find are a great place from which to enjoy the northern lights in relative peace. Nothing beats lying awake in your front-runner roof tent while watching the northern lights dance away in the night sky. The Canning Stock Route, Australia. They call this the toughest four-wheel drive track in the world, and rightfully so. Everything seems bigger and more dangerous down under. This route runs from Halls Creek in the Kimberley region of Western Australia to Iluna in the Midwest region. Stretching 1,150 miles, it's the longest historical stock route in the world. It was created in 1910 to connect a series of wells that stockmen used to get their cattle south to the market. The remote nature of the trail and the fact you must cross dunes means it's not for the faint-hearted or inexperienced. A journey to South Georgia Island, going to the ends of the earth to visit a truly wild place by Craig Becker. When I tell people I've been to South Georgia Island, most will ask if that is anywhere near Savannah. When I say that it's actually located in a remote part of the Southern Ocean, roughly 1,200 miles from Antarctica, the inevitable follow-up question is, why would anyone want to go to such a place? The answer to that is a simple one. Most people wouldn't want to go there, but those who do seldom come home unchanged. South Georgia is a place that is unknown to most people, but adventurous travelers and fans of the history of Antarctic exploration regard the island with an undeniable reverence. First discovered by a merchant vessel in 1675 and later claimed for King George III, it became a British overseas territory. The island remained mostly unexplored and uninhabited until the 19th century, when it became an important base of operations for whalers. But the island is probably best known for its role in the story of Ernest Shackleton, a prominent figure during the golden age of Antarctic exploration. In 1914, the Irish explorers set out to become the first person to cross the frozen continent, stopping at South Georgia for supplies before embarking on his ambitious expedition. But Shackleton and his crew aboard the ship Endurance never made it to Antarctica. Instead, they spent 
10 months trapped in the frozen Weddell Sea before their vessel was crushed and sent to the bottom of the sea. Before that happened, Shackleton and his men abandoned the ship and set up camp on a large ice floe. They stayed there for another five months before using lifeboats to reach a desolate place called Elephant Island, where they survived by eating seal meat. Realizing that a rescue was unlikely, the Irish explorer and a hand-picked team made a daring open ocean crossing, spending 16 days at sea to return to South Georgia Island in search of help. Miraculously, Shackleton and his men reached their destination, but found themselves stranded on the wrong side of the island. He and two other crew members then set out to traverse the rugged and barren landscape, eventually reaching a whaling station and the assistance they were seeking. That last desperate trek has become the stuff of legend and remains incredibly difficult today, even when using modern gear. It took a few more months for Shackleton to return to Elephant Island to rescue the remaining crew of the Endurance. All told, the ordeal lasted 20 months, but remarkably not a single man died, making this one of the greatest survival stories in history. Sadly, Shackleton suffered a heart attack on a subsequent expedition to the Antarctic a few years later, dying en route. He was then buried on South Georgia, where his grave remains to this day. Today, South Georgia is once again primarily uninhabited. The British maintain a small research station and naval base there, with about 20 people on duty at any given time. They welcome the occasional Antarctic cruise ship, which brings eager adventurers to this quiet corner of the globe. Those visitors find the remains of several whaling stations, a small museum, and one of the southernmost churches in the world. Just getting to South Georgia can be an adventure. Most ships visiting the island depart from the city of Ushaya in Argentina's Patagonia region. That means crossing the Drake Passage, one of the most treacherous and turbulent stretches of ocean on the planet. Because no land masses are located at that latitude, the ocean currents are unimpeded, creating a barrier between the Atlantic and Southern oceans. For centuries, sailors have avoided those waters whenever possible, as the rough seas are challenging for ships and passengers alike. My journey to South Georgia began by catching a ship out of Ushuaia, bound for the Falcon Islands. From there, we turned south to start our crossing of the Drake Shake, entering the Southern Ocean after two wild days at sea that kept many passengers confined to their cabins. But on the other side, we were met with relatively calm waters punctuated with cold southerly breezes. The Southern Ocean also greeted us with another welcome sight, whales. Once hunted to near extinction for the oil contained in their blubber, these great sea mammals are now making a comeback in the waters off of the coast of Antarctica. During the five-day journey to South Georgia, it was not uncommon to catch a glimpse of these massive creatures breaking the surface alongside the ship. Throughout the voyage, we spotted humpbacks, southern right whales, sperm whales, and even a few blue whales, the largest creatures ever to inhabit our planet. Things only got more wondrous upon arrival at South Georgia. The island's snow-capped peaks appeared on the horizon, a series of jagged 8,000-foot mountains stretching skyward like daggers from the sea. Even from a distance, the shoreline seemed dramatic and foreboding, with low-hanging clouds casting a shroud of mystery across the landscape. 
A century after Shackleton's final voyage to South Georgia, his shadow still looms large over the island. Most visitors know his story well and make the pilgrimage hoping to follow in the Irish explorer's illustrious footsteps. Many begin their visit at the former whaling station of Gritbegin, which sits not far from the British outpost. There, they find a small museum that shares insights into the history of the place, including Shackleton's remarkable story of survival. A short walk away is the local graveyard, where a headstone marks the final resting spot of the legendary man himself. Despite regular visits from passing tourist ships, South Georgia remains as wild and isolated as ever. The best way to experience its remote beauty is on foot, hiking along routes meant for adventurous trekkers. One such route follows the final hours of Shackleton's march across the island as he searched for aid for his men. The path wanders through rocky highlands and past icy lakes before descending steeply into a wide, flat valley below. The trail ends along the coast at the remains of a village once known as Stromness. It was there that Shackleton and his companions wandered into camp, completely unrecognizable after spending nearly 20 months missing in the Antarctic. In Shackleton's era, the Southern Ocean was a vast hunting ground for whalers, but much has changed since then, with the waters off the coast of South Georgia now a designated wildlife refuge. Whales frequently gather in those once dangerous seas, and elephant and fur seals line the beaches. The island is home to a number of rare bird species too, including the wandering albatross and the Antarctic petrel. Visitors can also spot plenty of penguins there, with gentoos, rockhoppers, and macaronis common along the shores. But the island's most stunning display of wildlife is found at the place called St. Andrew's Bay. There, travelers will find one of the largest king penguin colonies in the world, with a population of over 200,000. The bay is one of the primary breeding grounds for the flightless birds, which stand up to three feet in height when fully grown. Seeing so many of those awkward but lovable creatures lining the beach is a memorable sight indeed. It's one that stays with you long after you've left South Georgia behind. But beware, should you heed that call, you likely won't escape unchanged. And this South Georgia is a world away from Savannah. Here at Roller Cam, we didn't invent the cam strap, we just perfected it. Roller Cam's patented and adventure approved design eliminates frictional loss, resulting in straps you can easily tighten, up to 10 times that of a standard strap. Roller Cam is made from only the highest grade materials stainless steel shafts, marine grade brass rollers, hydrophobic polypropylene webbing, triple bar tack stitching. This is your sign to ditch your ratchet straps. Throw out your junk straps and replace them all with the best in class for outdoor adventure. The only thing you'll worry about is how many can fit in your gear bag. Shop Expedition and Classic, only at RollerCam.com. Osa Wild, A Journey into the Heart of Costa Rica. Words and Photos by Michael Rudd. Peninsula de Osa is in a remote and lush corner of southern Costa Rica and has over 40 unique species of snakes, 
140 species of mammals, 370 bird species, and more than 10,000 insect species, making it one of the most biodiverse places on Earth. For years, I've been intrigued by the idea of planning an overland adventure to document some of Osa's flora and fauna. Recently, my wife Breck and I outfitted our 2005 Toyota 4Runner at our winter home in Playa del Coco and headed south on the Pan American Highway. We climbed down from our rooftop tent and set foot on a secluded beach a few miles west of Puerto Jimenez. After brewing a couple cups of joe in a traditional Costa Rican coffee press, we set off for our morning stroll along a magnificent stretch of golden sand. To our delight, there was not another soul in sight. Suddenly, my wife shrieked in terror as she nearly stepped on a yellow-bellied sea snake, a highly venomous serpent that had washed up on the beach. After explaining that they seldom bite humans, she reminded me that she still hated snakes. Back at camp, I was snapping a few pictures of a rare harpy eagle, one of the most powerful raptors in the world. It was perched high in a tree above our rig and was eating a freshly caught fish. While the harpy was devouring its head, noticeable pieces of fish guts fell onto the windscreen of our truck below. As I grimaced and reluctantly began to clean the window, I turned to Breck and jested. So, honey, how are you liking our first morning in the Osa? She smiled. We studied the map and planned our route to the eastern entrance to Parque de Corcovado. As we enjoyed fresh mahi tacos, the fish were caught in cocoa a couple of days earlier. Afterwards, we broke camp and traveled on a route known by the locals as Grass Road Beach and headed south on road 245 towards Cabo Matapalo. Matapalo, at the tip of the peninsula, is popular among experienced surfers and features a rugged coastline flanked by a towering rainforest teeming with wildlife. Brightly colored pairs of scarlet macaws screeched overhead as howler monkeys loudly defined their territory while we traversed the rough and rutted track to the beach in our forerunner. When we reached the end, we were rewarded with one of the most spectacular seascapes we'd ever seen. We embraced the peaceful remoteness of the Cape and broke the heat with an ice-cold Imperial Cerveza. Moving on, we backtracked to Road 245 and turned left towards Karate, a tiny village at the end of the road and a popular home base for treks in Corcovado via the La Leona Ranger Station. There isn't much development here, except for a few remote eco-lodges, a closed pulperia, and a small airstrip next to the beach. We were careful to top off our fuel and stock our supplies in Jimenez, as there are no services along the 40-kilometer route. Upon arriving at Karate, we carefully drove our rig onto the sand and parked next to a picnic table under an incredible stand of coconut palms. This beach is an important nesting ground for Olive Ridley, Leatherback, Green, and Hawksbill sea turtles, which come ashore at night to lay their eggs. We stood in awe of the beach's isolation while dozens of colorful scarlet macaws and capuchin monkeys in the surrounding almond trees curiously watched our every move. The area is protected and studied by the Sea Turtle Conservation Program which also offers a sea turtle volunteer program. After lunch, 
we strolled down the long and secluded beach and saw evidence of some of the estimated 3,000 yearly nests. We were careful not to disturb them as we made our way to the sea to cool off from the heat and humidity. While exploring Costa Rica for nearly two decades, I've had endless opportunities to camp on amazing beaches, in lush rainforests, and near active volcanoes. Now, for the first time, we arrived at the Osa, a place that National Geographic magazine dubbed the most biologically intense place on Earth. We yearned to get as deep into the rainforest as we could possibly and set up camp. As it turned out, we found a 4x4 trail that continued past Karate to a very remote eco-resort, Luna Lodge, on the edge of Corcovado. The three-mile crawl followed the Karate River for most of the way and then wound up a steep incline, requiring four low for the last stretch. The lodge was hand-built by Lana Wedmore of Colorado, her Tico boyfriend, along with local labor, and was opened in the year 2000. Sourcing and delivering the materials for the project was an exhausting challenge. Back then, there was virtually no road, phone, or internet, only the wild remoteness of the virgin rainforest. After meeting Lana, she explained that she has owned and operated the lodge for the last 23 years and that she was passionate about the conservation of the Osa. She invited us to dinner and kindly offered to let us camp on her property, and we obliged. We enjoyed a delicious meal prepared with produce from her organic gardens and locally caught fish. After dinner, Lana welcomed us to our campsite, one of three that she has set aside for overlanders. Once our camp was set, we canvassed our plans for exploring Corcovado while relaxing under the massive rainforest canopy. We fell asleep to the exotic and eerie sounds of jungle insects, frogs, and other unfamiliar critters. At one point during the night, we were awakened by a downpour so intense we wondered if our tent would collapse. The next morning, we carefully climbed down from our tent only to notice a red dye all over our truck. It had rained so hard overnight that the color from the tent canvas was now all over our shiny silver paint job. As Breck prepared our morning meal, I wiped down the truck while being attacked by mosquitoes. Already, the humidity was so overwhelming that even the simplest of tasks caused sweat to pour from my body. After breakfast, we hiked deep into Lana's 60-acre property to a series of waterfalls in the Karate River. Along the steep and treacherous trail to the falls, we noticed several species of flora and fauna that we hadn't seen before. A blue-tailed skink caught my attention, and I managed to capture an image of the lizard scurrying through the rainforest. At the river, we were surprised to see freshwater prawns moving about the shallows looking for food. I managed to convince Breck, who was reluctant to take a dip in the aquamarine pool, that the crustaceans were harmless and tasted a lot better than they looked. After several unsuccessful attempts to catch a few, we decided to cool off under a stunning waterfall. While being massaged by the falls, we observed morpho butterflies glide past us and a family of howler monkeys lounging in the humid canopy above. The following morning, we chose a day trip into the park that we easily arranged at the lodge. Visitors to Corcovado must be accompanied by a certified guide from the Instituto Costarricense de Turismo, the ICT, and purchase a permit to enter. Besides being extremely knowledgeable about the trail system, local guides are experts in identifying the flora and fauna and locating many species. We met our guide at Playa Karate and hiked the beach for about an hour to reach the La Leona Ranger Station. Along the way, we spotted capuchin monkeys, collared peccaries, 
red lord Amazon parrots, and macaws. Our guide explained that the park encompasses the only remaining old-growth wet forest on the Pacific coast of Central America and has 13 major ecosystems, including lowland forest, holilo palm forest, highland cloud forest, and mangrove swamps, as well as marine and beach habitats. We entered and hiked among some of Corcovado's 700 species of trees, which includes a massive ceiba measuring 252 feet. In this forest lives the largest populations of jaguars, scarlet macaws, and tapirs in Costa Rica. The park is also home to pumas, ocelots, giant anteaters, and harpy eagles. Other species include spiders, capuchin, howler, and white-faced monkeys, silky anteaters, poison dart frogs and crocodiles, as well as the Bushmaster and fur to lance pit vipers. The last two we hope never to encounter, as they are among the deadliest snakes on the planet. While exploring the dense rainforest, we saw a blue-crowned motmot, black mandible toucan, a sloth, and a pair of Pacific screech owls. We admitted that we needed much more time here, as the wildlife is not as easy to spot in the dense forest as it is on the coast. Nevertheless, our short time in Corcovado was a rewarding experience during which we discovered its immense beauty and biodiversity. As we hiked the long and desolate stretch of beach back to the truck, we were already discussing our plans to return. After nearly a week of exploring the Osa's southern realm, we packed up our rig and set out for Drake Bay. The turnoff lies 35 kilometers north of Puerto Jimenez at the small village of Rincon, near the shores of the Golfo Dulce. Drake, one of Costa Rica's most isolated destinations, is like a lost world lying between Corcovado and Humedal National Terra Sirpe, the country's largest mangrove swamp. We couldn't wait to get there to check it out. Our forerunner handled the rough roads towards Bahia Drake with ease as we navigated steep switchbacks over the mountainous terrain. Along the 27-kilometer route towards the coast, we crossed a couple of rivers and passed through Rancho Camado, a quaint hamlet founded by gold miners in the 1940s. Nowadays, locals regularly welcome travelers who come here to learn about gold panning and sustainable farming or to enjoy rural Tico hospitality en route to or from the bay. We arrived in Awahitas, a small village that serves as the area's commercial center. From here, one can hire a boat to enter Corcovado at the San Pedrillo Ranger Station or hike the 17-kilometer coastal trail. Dive charters are popular and can take you to the Reserva Biologica Ilsa de Cano. It lies 20 kilometers offshore and is one of the best diving locations in Costa Rica. The waters around the island offer excellent visibility and feature intricate rock formations along with 15 different species of coral. Experienced scuba divers will have the opportunity to see an amazing array of fish as well as hammerhead sharks, manta rays, dolphins, sea turtles, and humpback whales. With a limited amount of time, we only snorkeled in the bay. We parked on the beach near Punta Aguajitas, grabbed our gear, and entered the turquoise sea. The bay was teeming with marine life. Not far offshore, we swam with huge schools of vibrant fish and saw a spotted eagle ray. After a very rewarding snorkeling experience, we set up a beach camp and prepared some lobster that I had speared for our lunch. It was the perfect way to spend our time in Bahia Drake.
Our journey to the Oso was a bucket list experience that quenched our thirst for adventure. With its vast tracts of untouched wilderness, indigenous peoples, and unparalleled biodiversity, the Peninsula de Osa is most certainly the jewel of Costa Rica. Stay tuned for Outdoor by Fours issue 50, celebrating our 10th anniversary with stories that will inspire you to step out and explore the world around you. Also, be sure to visit the Outdoor by Four website at www.outdoorx4.com regularly for new tips, reviews, and stories, and join our e-newsletter to stay in the loop on the latest from Outdoor by Four. You can also follow Outdoor by Four and the adventures of our staff and contributors on Instagram and Facebook at, at @outdoorx4 on TikTok and YouTube at, at @outdoorx4 magazine and by following the hashtag outdoorx4 until our next issue we wish each of you the happiest of adventures <laughs> <laughs>